Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I'm really excited about the possibility of having um, robotic technologies um, in construction and demolition and in disaster contexts, which could go into those situations and could do inspections for asbestos, for example. Yeah. Um, and who could, who could identify dangerous, situations. dangerous um, particles in the air, that could identify dangerous um, viruses in the air, um, that could go into situations that people shouldn't be going into and can actually avoid people from having to have contact with those kinds of dangers and, 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 and can enable people not to have to confront those kinds of risks. Great to be back with you here, as always. Quite regularly, I'm asked about the business model behind Humans of Purpose. The answer, as you may know, is that as a social enterprise, we rely on a handful of sponsored episodes each year to fund all our operations. About one-fifth of our podcasts annually are paid for by sponsors and promotional partners, which enables the rest of the year's content to be run sponsorship-free and editorially independent. We have just two promotional spots remaining for 2022, so if you are a values-aligned organisation with a product or service and want to reach our young and senior professional audience of Australian changemakers, numbering around 10,000 listeners per month, we'd love to hear from you. Our wonderful supporter base here ensures we are regular fixtures in the top 20 of the Australian management podcast charts. Not a bad result at all, considering there are now nearly 3 million other podcasts here and globally that we're competing against. Beyond sponsoring the podcast, another great way to support the show and enjoy some great perks, if you're a keen listener, is to become a Humans of Purpose member. Perks include access to every episode a few days early, ad-free, an audio note giving you more context on each guest and the episode, a full transcript of each episode, as well as my top five insights from each episode and contact details for each guest and a brokered introduction service. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more. As always, we are proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth. They do all our marketing and socials and are doing a terrific job for a great cause. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Sarah Pink to the podcast. Sarah really piqued my interest when I saw her present at the Humanitech conference earlier in the year. She's the director of the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. She's also co-leader of the People Program and Transport and Mobility's focus area at the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society. Sarah is a true emerging tech leader and polymath, and we, as we discovered during the podcast, also an avid documentary filmmaker. In this conversation, we talk about the importance of human and community insights in shaping useful technologies, the interdisciplinary nature of Sarah's work, appropriate and ethical design principles for working on emerging tech, and more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sarah as much as I did. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on this Monday afternoon. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. I am a bit of a conference groupie, I must admit. I said so earlier. I thought your talk at Humanitech was just terrific. So, I mean, so interesting. Emerging tech, um, the nexus between uh, mankind, humankind and technology um, and really looking forward to exploring that with you today. So thanks for coming in. Well, I thought, look, a good place to start for me um, when I looked at your research gate and your Monash page, it was very comprehensive 
comprehensive. Um, what is a design anthropologist and what do they do? Could be a good starting point. Okay, yeah. So I trained as an anthropologist, social anthropologist. So as a social anthropologist, well, I study people, um, the circumstances in which people live, why things happen as they do, why people do things as they do, what people believe, what are the logics through which they live their lives, what are their ethics. Um, really trying to understand everyday life and how and why people live as, as they do. Um, so anthropology is a really interesting academic discipline. We learn so much about the world. We've got so much to offer, so much to share. But very often it's difficult for anthropologists to do that. Um, and for me, the interest in design, so becoming a design anthropologist, was that design is a discipline and, and a practice that really looks towards the future. It's about change. It's about future. It's about creating things for when, as we go forward. So connecting all of the knowledge and all of the insights that we can generate about people, about human experience, about human needs um, in anthropology to a practice that enables us to actually design for futures and imagine possible futures for people. For me, it was just the perfect way to go forward. So I started to work with designers across various different projects. I learned so much from them. I'd never try to replace what they do myself. Um, so I love collaboration. And really started to kind of form my identity and my practice as a design anthropologist. I'm not the only design anthropologist in the world. There's a whole load of brilliant design anthropologists. Oh, certainly um, not, but I just thought <laughs> but, you're, you're the first one that I've met. Yeah, and the term for me was just fascinating yeah. because it sort of, to me, hints at the evolution of people and what, what they might be mm. doing in the future, what yeah. we imagine the future will look like. And by its own nature, you sort of mentioned collaboration and it seems to be like it's a very interdisciplinary space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really means bringing out the best in what you can do, but always learning and understanding what people in other disciplines can do. So that's why I wanted to learn how designers work, how designers think, and to be able to collaborate really well with designers. So with designers, um, if I want to think about, you know, how will people live in the future? Like, the future's so uncertain, we can never know it's absolute. We can never predict perfectly or absolutely what will happen in the future. And one of the reasons why we can't do that is because we never really know what people are going to do. But if we can understand what people do in the present and why they do those things, we can really start to think a lot about how they might live in possible futures and likely futures. Mm. And with designers, one of the great things you could do, which is also really good fun is to actually create possible future situations that people can go into and they can experience. That's cool. So isn't that great? The idea of thinking that, of course, we can't live in the future because the future is just this kind of impossible unknown space, mm. but we can simulate self-driving cars, for example. We can simulate a possible life in the home with technologies that you would never normally experience, right? Um, we can also kind of create situations that people know are simulated, but they can pretend in and experience new technologies in their lives. So that is just great fun. And also imagine participating in a study like that, actually being able to drive around in a car, which is like a self-driving car. It's not really driving itself, but it's actually, you know what it's like, would be yeah. like if you're in one. I think it's incredible. And just seeing how that plays out in um, game design, like virtual reality mm. and AR games and, you know, Pokemon Go was was very interesting, the, the fact that people enjoyed that. And one of my favourite things that you said about imagining many different futures is you know, you, you said before that, you know, people almost never are going to 
do what you think they're going to do. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I always think about that um, idea that um, Steve Jobs had to combine the phone with the camera. Mm-hmm. I remember backpacking around Europe um, as a youngster thinking, why would anyone want to have a phone and a camera together? Yeah. It just It's obvious that you just need both. <laughs> and, then, and then look at us now. I mean, when so I saw someone recently um, in Brisbane with a separate camera and it was the first camera I'd seen probably in months. It yeah. was incredible. <laughs> but the other thing is like, actually, do you have, ever have a car without a phone now? No. So you wouldn't actually want, if somebody said to you, oh, I'm going to turn your phone and your car into the same device, you'd like to be saying, oh, but that means like I'd have a very, very big phone, right? <laughs> Huge phone. <laughs> yeah. But if you think about it the other way around, you've got your phone, but you would never get in your car without your phone. No. And people in our studies, you know, that we've done all over the world yeah. have shown us that as well. So actually some of our technologies, we think of the car as being like a discrete thing separate from the phone, but it isn't. Yes, it's part of the same yeah, system. It's really part, all part of the same thing. And you can see actually your phone connects to your car now in some cases, right? So you see that connection actually being made in like a really tangible way mm. when you, if you go into a car. But Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, that's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Actually, we're living in a world where we... We kind of still think some things are being separated out from, from other things, but in reality, the way we use them is, is much more connected. They're all part of a sort of system or an mm-hmm. ecosystem to belabor that term a little bit. Um, here's a thoughty one for you. What principles or frameworks do we need to consider to ensure that technology serves humanity and not the other way around? Well, for me, there are two key starting points, two concepts. One is trust, one is ethics. Now, we know that technology designers, engineers and government, all of the big consultancies, all of the big companies and industry, they have their trust centres, their ethics centres, their ethics frameworks. Um, There's an awful lot going on in that space. But there's one thing for me that's missing, which we really need, which is an everyday life trust and everyday life ethics framework. Mm -hmm. Now, once you get into the real world, you realise that people don't trust technologies, Right. People trust circumstances in which they use technologies. Yeah, that's a really good way to um, frame it. You know, but but one of the problems for me is that we do have a lot of money invested in initiatives to design technologies that are trustworthy. And I think we should look, be looking somewhere else for those solutions. We should actually be asking, what do people trust in everyday life? What mm. do they need in everyday life? And how can we design technologies in everyday life that are trusted? Right. Um, same with ethics. Can we make technologies ethical? Or do we really need to think about making the whole system in which technology is used ethical? Yep. It's a tech that gets blamed all the time. (laughs) You know, tech is unethical. Tech isn't trustworthy. Technology is pretty neutral, actually. Yeah, isn't I, it? I don't think technology. I think <laughs> yeah. that technology is agnostic. Mm, yeah. Um, that, yeah, but yeah, like the tech doesn't care. No, the, actually, the platform Facebook doesn't <laughs> yeah. care about yeah. anything. It just exists. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So sometimes I think people confuse um, the powers that be behind the, that machinery mm-hmm. and, and what the intentions are. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so it's that whole system and world of power relationships that actually we need to fix. 
So for me, we need to just turn that whole question around and say, how can tech help us fix that system, right? And where do we need to think about designing tech? Where do we need to start tech design? Where do we need to do it so that we can fix the system? How about if we just turned it all around and actually all of the tech design was done in communities with real people going in and out of their homes, talking to them, collaborating with them, going in and out of people's places of work. You can imagine that a whole ecosystem bubbling away full of tech designers and engineers and people developing software actually in the world rather than in a place separate from it. Yeah, like which, a, a corporation yeah, which, yeah, which has yeah. its own sort of interests that mm-hmm. may be corrupting at yeah, times. Because yeah. I think when you see the major trust breaches, um, they're because of that um, that uh, counter-running um, profit motive. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the time it's, okay, I thought that my data was secure here. It turns out it's being sold to a third party to better segment mm-hmm. or make a av- digital avatar of me to sell onto other companies and yeah. – you know, I think we're even at the point uh, where a lot of people know this and just accept it as the price they pay for the convenience of the tech. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how ethical that is, or whether it's it's more like a bullied position that we end up in. Yeah, it is, and it's a. I think there's some really interesting questions to ask about how do we end up in those situations mm-hmm. where things go wrong, because, and who who do we hold responsible? Ultimately, because I think the responsibility is has become diffused and distributed, so you can't pinpoint it on necessarily just one person, Definitely. one organisation. Because when you meet people who work in tech companies and organisations, often people are very passionate about ethics, passionate about technology, passionate about what they do. And as individuals, they're not necessarily responsible for when things go wrong. Um, because um, my... Belief is, you know, and as humans, if we think about trust, our first stance towards anything is to trust. Yep. And I trust that most people actually working in all kinds of different organisations and situations have really actually got their ethics right. Yeah. Um, and that they would do things that are trustworthy. But we're part of a much bigger, wider system where, of course, you know, costs get cut. Yeah. Budgets get cut. You can never do exactly everything you want to do. And this doesn't happen quite in the way that it should. And that doesn't. And, and then we end up with a broken system. And so um, we do have a ultimately a broken system. And do you think that, I mean, if somebody told you, I've got this tech company that's got this tech platform, it's a social network, and um, we actually do take ethics very seriously because we've got a team, an ethics team in our organization, mm. is that enough for you or? No, that's still not enough because the ethics team's still in the organisation, They're right? paid by the organisation. And they're paid by the organisation. Yeah. But I think if somebody told me we're setting up a new company and we're going to have an ethics team and a tech team and we're going to just locate that company within a community, we're going to work with all of the different small organisations, um, with schools, with universities, with small companies, with shops, with people living in that community to develop the tech that they need. Mm. Um, Just sort of like devolved and yeah. community-based yeah. will then, allow, enable more trust. Yeah, I'd say that's really exciting, Yeah, right? Because the people who are going to be evaluating your tech and what it does on a day-to-day basis and giving you the feedback are going to be the people who are really using it. Well said. Yeah. Now, amongst many things, you're also a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> That's right. Before you tell me about the documentaries you have made, who is your favourite documentary filmmaker? Oh, my God, that is such a difficult question. 
Now, I can't, I can't answer that question. Because I'll just I tell you mine because I, I don't I'm, have favourites, but I'd love to hear who yours is. <laughs> I love Werner Herzog. Right, yeah. You, you like yeah, his yeah. documentaries? I, yeah, his work is absolutely outstanding. He's got a great yeah. voice. He's very dark and funny in German. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me about your documentaries and um, how did you, um, because you do a lot of different things, um, mm-hmm. I'd call you a polymath of some kind, but m- most likely. Uh, what have you done and how did you get into it? I trained as a documentary filmmaker a long time ago. My master's degree was in visual anthropology um that was a really exciting moment and i was the first the second year of a new course um to be led in visual anthropology at the university of manchester in the uk because obviously i'm british no one no one had any idea and um it was so exciting um to be able to draw together anthropology and documentary filmmaking and we were so lucky we were taught by staff from as well as our amazing tutors at the university, was taught by staff from Granada Television in Manchester. Um, and some of the people who were involved in making um, really amazing series of documentaries which were on TV called Disappearing World in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. Um, so I had this, this amazing training and, and um, anthropological documentary filmmaking or ethnographic filmmaking, as it's called sometimes, really involves getting in there in the camera, with the camera, with real people, in their lives. And that's why I'm such a big fan of the close-up. I'm a really big fan of the close-up. I'm a really big fan of working with the smallest possible um, filmmaking team. So that might just be me um, and my camera and myself doing the sound recording, or it might be just be working with one other person. So it's it's not about going in somewhere with a big film crew and a script. Um, it's very much about getting into people's lives with them and asking them what matters to them, mm. asking them to show you what matters to them and following them around. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my filmmaking practice now um, has involved doing research with people in their homes. Mm. As part of that process, I've also collaborated with some amazing filmmakers. Um, Nadia Astari, who's an Indonesian filmmaker who did a project with me where she did the filming in Indonesia. Um, Kit Williams, who's an amazing Australian documentary maker, who worked with me on our Smart Home Seniors film, which is about um, older people and smart home tech in New South Wales. And Jenny Lee, who actually works in our lab now, um, who works with me to edit my latest film, which is called Digital Energy Futures. And in all of those films, I've um, used a filmmaking practice, which I've developed as a research practice over many years as well, which involves going into people's homes with them and asking them to show me around their home while they show me what they do in their home, the tech they have in their home, exactly how they use it. Um, so often we ask people to reenact whole processes of things they do in their <laughs> lives. But, but to tell us what they think about when they're doing those things. Yep. Because, for example, if you're using a washing machine, right, and you're doing your laundry, and that's a very important piece of tech mm. in your life. But what do you think about when you're loading the washing machine? Mm. Do you think about when you're unloading it? I think about right. the sense of satisfaction yeah. I'm going to have from having done <laughs> anything in the house after it's done. Yeah. That's yeah. what I think about. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, you know, and what's the relationship of your phone to your washing machine, going back to what you said before? Yeah. Um, would you actually use your washing machine without using your phone? Uh, I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. I don't think I'd ever go to the bathroom without my phone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's probably common for a lot of people. I'm I not think sure. so. Yeah. People's phones play They're central everywhere. roles in their lives. They're so everywhere. In most of my projects, I'll ask people, what's the first thing you do when you wake up? Check Look the at your phone. phone. Yeah. Some people do keep their phones in other rooms at night to yeah. stop themselves from checking them, but most people have that. The phone is the last thing they see yep. before they go to sleep, the first thing they see when they wake up it, in the morning. And is, is that bad? 
I don't know. If it makes you happy, then it probably isn't bad. Yeah. good. Um, I mean, it's a good point, but I mean, a lot of the advice these days seems mm-hmm. to be keep your phone out of your room. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all this sleeping advice, which is yeah. separate, but it is odd in a way that we kind of feel sometimes a bit anxious if our phone mm-hmm. isn't near us. I think the thing is that our phones have become so interwoven in our lives. There are gateways into our friendships into our work schedules, into almost everything that's meaningful to us Mm. in our lives. Um, So obviously, if you can't sleep at night, your phone is going to become entangled in that situation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, If you're going out for dinner, your phone's going to be entangled in that situation as well because you'll probably use it to book. You might use it to look at the menu before you go. So I think the the question, the point there is, again, it's like we're saying, you know, the tech's neutral. The tech isn't actually doing anything good or bad, right? It's what you do with it. Um, Your phone's going to become part of situations that are right for you and situations that are wrong for you. And what we really need to do is to learn how to manage that. Yeah. so, yeah, the, it, it's always complicated, right? If you're an anthropologist, the, com- the answer is always like any question. It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> it's contingent. Yeah. It really depends on this and it depends, depends on, on that and it can really shift. Yeah. With one little small thing that comes I, um, in. I'll tell you what's interesting. Having just had a um, young son, uh, he's four months old now, but they, they start to tell you about these things about like not having screens or phones near them, and that actually makes you change your behaviour a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Quite interesting, the effect of that on you and sort of becoming a bit more like present and mindful, and it does make you kind of want to, I think, have your phone away more because otherwise you miss stuff. Mm-hmm. And also you can't bring a bright phone near a baby sleeping or whatever. So there are certain things that you just can't have around as much. And I think it's actually really positive because it makes me start to think, what are some situations where I could not include my phone in? Um, and that sounds silly, but, I mean, being a bit of a tech head myself, the phone does so much for me now. I mean, it's the ultimate convenience. It can do anything. Um, but carving out those times and spaces where you can dispense with it becomes quite exciting. I'm going to start interviewing you now. Like, so what other tech did you get when you had a baby? Um, well, most people end up getting the the watch, a watch that has like a silent buzzing alarm so they don't w- wake up their partner when they have to do dream feeds and that kind of stuff. Uh, I didn't have to do that, um, just relied on other mechanisms for that. But we've got the, funny, the funniest thing that we got that completely backfired is a Google uh, speaker, which is in the, the bub's room so we can um, – you know, say, hey, Google, you know, blah, 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 play this song, play that song, because you get your hands full a lot of the time. It's convenient. But um, Marlo's nickname is Cuckoo, um, which sounds like Google. So a, a lot of the time I'll be playing with him and I'll say, hey, Cuckoo, give me a smile. And then Google will just start speaking to me and saying random things. And it, it's very, like, confusing and distracting and ridiculous. <laughs> so that's a big backfire. But we've tried all kinds. Like, the technology they have for babies now is um, – They've got a thing called the snoo, which is um, basically like little babies like to rock. You need to rock them all the time and like, um, you know, rock them, comfort them, put them to sleep. There's a thing that just does that for you um, in a smart sense. Have you heard of this? That's amazing. No, I haven't. So, I had my kids a long time yeah, ago. Yeah. So so I, had no, I had no tech assistance <laughs> at all. <laughs> and I'm sure things were much easier. But this snoo thing, it like is just – it's supposed to be helpful but like – what happened is is that we got it and then the kid 
gets addicted to it and then you can't move it because it's this big clunky thing and then the sleep patterns change, you go to sleep school and then you're not allowed to have the snoo anymore. So, But there's still people I talk to who have the snoo and there's these groups everywhere on snoo best practice but it's essentially a machine that it's incredibly smart. What it does is you, you strap your baby in and it's like a little um, bassinet and it, it rocks rhythmically sensing your baby's movement so it knows how settled and how vigorously to rock and it does that until it's asleep and then the the um the app that's connected to the snoo tells you how things are continuously so and that app is on your phone right? yeah that's on your phone yeah. so then you can't leave your phone anywhere also the baby monitor which is the camera watching the baby um that feeds through to my phone also so it's another reason that you can't not have the phone near you and it's a myriad of reasons. But it's interesting because you, it's created a different relationship yeah, to your phone, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. And I think the smartphone, that's why the smartphone is just such an amazing technology. Yeah. Because your smartphone might have been one thing when you first had one. Yeah. And your smartphone can evolve into having so many different roles in your life. Mm. Take that, notes. But it's everything. just the best example of an emerging technology. Mm. Because an emerging technology is... It, it keeps on emerging, the smartphone. Yeah. It keeps on emerging as something else, as its software kind of changes. But but also in your life and as your life changes, then you, you adapt it to the particular thing that you need it to be in your oh. life at that moment. Because yeah. you were saying earlier, I'm doing a bit of analysis on yeah. you now, I've finished interviewing you. Oh, no, this, <laughs> this is a deep psychology moment. Go ahead. But the interesting thing was you, that you said that you're actually having having the baby meant that you stopped having the phone in your life so yep. much because you wanted to take it out. Yep. But what's so interesting is that you've actually put it into your life in new ways. Yes, yes. Um, you make it more yeah. adapted to the yeah. – it becomes, I guess, a tool to help you be a better – Parent, mm, yeah. in a way. Yeah. And, you know, one of the projects I did during the COVID pandemic um, was a shared project that I did with colleagues in the UK who asked me to work with them on this. And um, it was not a high kind of tech project in a way, but it, it just gave us so many lessons. We did the re- research project about the way that child protection social workers were using, um, were adapting in the pandemic when they weren't allowed to go and visit families in their homes. Yep. And for me, one of the most interesting parts of that project was what we learned about how they started to use smartphones mm. in their work. Because for like previously, video consultations. Yeah, yep. because previously they hadn't used smartphones. I worked at a place before yeah. that we were doing that. Yeah. yeah. And um, it was absolutely amazing how literally overnight, because lockdowns do happen yep. overnight, <laughs> um, they had to completely change their practice and the smartphone, whereas before it hadn't been a technology for child protection social work, suddenly became a technology for child protection yep. social work um, completely just transformed its meaning and its use in that context and was able to help them to achieve things which, which were so important in terms of keeping kids safe. Yeah, and, and um, um, by the same token, there are some things that come out like early in like a transition like Clubhouse. Do you remember that? Yeah. No, no. So Clubhouse was like a um, like Zoom. It's like it was a way that you could kind of be in a video conference with like eight or ten friends on the same call but during lockdown. Mm-hmm. And it was big for like a few months, but then restrictions eased and then it just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. it's, it's sometimes yeah. interesting how like emergent solutions become like less relevant, just disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But that's so important to acknowledge as well because, yeah. you know, I think we often think of, um, particularly we used to think of technologies as products that you finished, you created, you finished them, you launched them into society. Right. And, and they were kind of fixed and stopped there. Yeah. But the, 
Anthropologists have always known that whenever you put anything is launched into society, people do things with it and they change it and they adapt it to what they need, right? But I think it's becoming increasingly obvious and, and evident that any piece of technology that becomes part of our life gets changed and shaped and its uses get shifted by the people who are using it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, just bringing back to the baby example before, um, it's quite paradoxical and scary in a way that like, even the childcare has an app where it sends information and like what they need for your kid and the photos and everything during the day of what's mm. going on. And then you're not supposed to have screens or technology near your developing kid. But how? Because that's what's supporting you to mm. help them grow up. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so absolutely. It's like, you know, what, what is the, the gulf between that and just getting the iPad for the kid is so minimal. And already, you know, he's sitting there and I, um, I'll be watching sport and he likes sport. So he watched sport as well. And, like, it's interesting for him. So, you know, what do you do with that? But, you <laughs> so, know, they're growing up in a world. Yeah. They, they're going to be absorbed yeah. into it at some yeah. point anyway. Yeah. So it's sort of like do you try and, you know, be all Amish about it and kind of segregate that out or do you just let it happen, I guess, mm-hmm. is the question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what emerging technologies, technology or technologies are you most excited about at the moment? You know, I um – That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going to have these. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Turo is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace. With Turo, you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Browse a huge selection of vehicles for just about any occasion or budget. Book an SUV or minivan for a family road trip, a pickup truck for some errands, or even test drive an EV. Every trip is backed by liability insurance. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Find your drive. Forget boring rental cars at Turo.com. I'm excited about technologies that can actually really make a difference in the world that we can use to to really to make life better for people yep. in the future. Um, so on one level, yes, of course, I'm excited about flying cars and all of these kind of tech, the tech that's hyped and that's kind of quite dramatic and, yep. and, and is exciting by its very nature, you know. Um, and which is the the top, you know, the, the subject of science fiction films. You know, we've been waiting for Blade flying cars for so long. Yep. Of course, I'm yep. excited about them. <laughs> um, but I'm actually much more excited about some of the really boring. Um, well, no, I don't think they're boring. No, tell but, me, but the I, situations I, I, that's what I want to know seem about. so much more mundane. I want the right? mundane stuff. So the things I'm really interested in are things like robotic bricklayers on construction sites. Yep. Um, because they can really solve problems for construction workers who might injure their backs or, you mm. know, it's a really tough job. And um, there's also a shortage of workers in that industry. So I think what I'm really interested in those kinds of technologies, which can make a difference in people's lives and, and that can really be significant. I'm really excited about the possibility of having um, robotic technologies um, in construction and demolition and in disaster contexts, which could go into those situations and could do inspections for asbestos, for example. Yeah. Um, and who could, I- who could identify dangerous, situations. dangerous um, 
particles in the air that could identify dangerous um, viruses in the air and that could go into situations that people shouldn't be going into and can actually avoid people from having to have contact with those kinds of dangers and, 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 and can enable people not to have to confront those kinds of risks. Mm. Um, and that, for me, is so, so important, right? Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about the possibilities of those technologies. I would really advocate for investment in and funding for the development of those kinds of technologies. Now, of course, one of the things that is difficult, though, is that... Um, if we want robotic and automated tech to be able to help us in situations which carry a lot of risk, one of the issues there is that situations that carry a lot of risk also carry a lot of uncertainty. So it's precisely the kind of situations that I said that would be great to have robotic tech going into. It's a kind of um, terrain and the kind of um, environment that's very different for robotic technologies to navigate. So, of course, um, if you're looking at a disaster situation, we've got buildings that are half collapsed um, and it's very difficult for robotic technology to navigate that kind of very unpredictable and uncertain terrain. Yep. Because um, So we need a lot more work in actually enabling, developing the tech and yep. the AI and the machine learning um, for robotic tech to be able to go into unpredictable um, environments and to be able to assess those environments and to know how to, to learn how to navigate them mm. very quickly. Mm. Um, so I'm excited about some of those much more kind of um, high-level scientific, if you like, um, investigations that can make that kind of work possible. Um, and I'm excited about the possibility it could save lives. Um, is, the, is the downside of some of that um, the bleed over into jobs that aren't that dangerous? Because it's, it's very easy to automate away um, jobs that humans could safely do just just to save money. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think we, we need to think about um, automation in terms of not just because we can, but where we would, where do we really need to, right? So where can we automate jobs and, and roles and in such a way that it really does make human life better? Are there some roles and some jobs that people really enjoy doing, which could be automated, but maybe... They shouldn't be automated. Like what about um, no? the big one in the US was truck driving, like long-haul mm -hmm. truck driving. Yeah. bit dangerous, but there's a lot of jobs. It's a huge part of the US economy. Yeah. Is, is that something that should be automated ideally? Or I think there's some interesting questions there, aren't there? I mean, like other aspects of those jobs that could be automated in that automated systems and technologies could assist people to be able to undertake those roles yeah. more comfortably and more safely. Yes. Right, because... Um, there's always a risk when you're in a moving vehicle. There's always elements yep. that could be unsafe. Um, but also, like for truck drivers, there's also questions around sitting for too long, not taking breaks often enough, and that kind of thing, which automated tech could also help with and could help to regulate. So I think that we need to think about the, the jobs and the roles that people are playing in life. Who's training for particular positions and particular roles? Um, when do we get to a situation where people are just not buying into that particular job? Um, and it might be useful to help um, in that particular role in terms of changing the role through automated technology yep. to make it into a role that's more appealing mm -hmm. or filling the gaps where there just aren't people to do those jobs. So the so owners then kind of shifts to, again, yeah, hmm. like what are, the, what are the more human aspects of the role mm -hmm. versus what are the more of yeah. the tech aspects yeah. of the role? So rather than from a top-down perspective yeah. saying, we can transform this whole industry. Yeah. 
by removing all of these human jobs and automating them and then retraining a whole workforce to do tech jobs. Yep. We might want to look at it from the bottom up <laughs> nice. and actually say, well, where are the gaps? Where do people need assistance? And how might we change this industry to make it work better for the workers? Yep. Now, that might not be the process which actually makes that industry much, much more efficient or that monetizes and optimizes the monetization process mm. of that industry. But it might create a situation where you have people doing the kind of jobs they want to do, um, where they're assisted by technology. Um, and I, I think that's just so important to consider it from that perspective because, you know, we work all our lives. Yeah. Um, how can we actually make work, the work that people spend so much so much of their time doing throughout their whole lives, how can we ensure that that continues to be meaningful for yes. people? Yes, and I think the converse of mm. that was almost like the, the Andrew Yang uh, proposition in, in the last um, election run-up where it was sort of in the US saying, well, if we did all this automation, we'd save uh, millions of dollars, um, you know, on jobs that were not necessary. And what we would do is instead of having people work these mundane jobs, we would give them a, a UBI, universal basic income, and then they mm. could do more of what they naturally yeah. want to do. I guess the, the counterpoint to that is, why not just give people jobs that are more meaningful for them and th- that, th- that they would enjoy mm-hmm. yeah. and, and not have them do things that are dangerous, uh, easy to mechanise um, and I guess would make the most of their human knowledge and experience rather than trying to get them to simulate things that tech could do. Yeah, I mean, I would yeah. say I am a believer in a universal basic yep. income. I think that that would, it's, um, I think it, it works. Yeah. And I think that it would be an ideal way forward. Um, but on the other hand, I think that people should be able to learn and to skill themselves in, into what they wish to do as they go forward in their lives and that we really need to think about that. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I fundamentally also believe in it. Whether I think government would actually do it, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a hard yeah. no for me. I can't see it happening yeah. Yeah. here yeah. or many other places. I hope it does one day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a future that I'd like to see. Um, I'd love to see people having a day a week of creative connection time or mm-hmm. something like that. That yeah. would be really exciting for me. What would you consider to be an intelligent technology, in parentheses? I think an intelligent technology is the, would be a technology that would connect with human intelligence in such a way that people would be able to live comfortably and, and happy with it. So a technology that would be designed to respond to what we need it to do, what we want it to do. It's a very difficult question. I'm struggling a little bit <laughs> well, with that. I don't, come, I, yeah. I don't invite people here to ask some easy yeah. questions, you know. <laughs> but l- let, me, let me put it to you a slightly yeah. different way. If there is a concept of an intelligent technology, can we say that not all technology or its applications are intelligent by default? Yeah, I think that for me, and it depends on how you want to define intelligence, right, because I think, yeah, machine intelligence... Um, already exists. So we we know that machines can perform complex tasks and um, we expect some of them to be able to perform complex tasks. And I think that for me, machine intelligence needs to be situated in in the particular circumstances and it needs to be asked about in terms of particular questions. And the reason why I'm finding it hard to answer the question is that you've given me a really general question about machine intelligence, right? So um, let's try and put that into a 
a kind of a context. Sure. So, you know, should a self-driving car be intelligent? That's that's yeah. a great example, yeah. Yeah, so if a car is exclusively self-driving, then, of course, it needs to be able to make the right decisions. It needs to make safe decisions at the right moment. So when you say right, needs, right decisions. Mm, which And then the question is, what what is right about a decision? Yep. So if it's self-driving car, the decision needs to be safe for the people who are for passengers and also for other drivers and also for pedestrians, for yeah. everybody, right? This makes safe decisions. Um, and that, that's interesting, right? Because if you ask a digital voice assistant to play you some music of a particular genre, then that particular technology needs to be intelligent enough to find something that you're interested in that you want. Yeah, I but, consider that basic mm, intelligence. But that's a that's different from saying that... It's a low-risk situation yeah, as well. It needs to ensure your safety and it needs to ensure the continuation yep. of your life. Yep, right? yep, yep. So, and other people's yeah. lives, yeah. So I think machine intelligence is very contextual. Um, and also there's another question of machine intelligence, you know, does it need to be sensitive as well? So if you ask a digital voice assistant for something, then what kind of level of sensitivity does it need to have to ensure that it doesn't actually present you with something that will upset you? <laughs> You know? <laughs> that's a really interesting so thought. Again, yeah, we there's there's some kind of really interesting questions around what is intelligence when and how can a machine perform it and what does a machine need to know to be able to make the decision which is intelligent in that it's a right decision, it's an ethical decision, it's a safe decision. Yeah, like with cars, I, the self driving car example, I always wonder, like with the trolley problem, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. So, um, you know, many people. Are not aware of the trolley problem yeah, in ethics, yeah. and many people, um, you know, once taught about it, it's mind blowing, and they spend a lot of time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. If most people aren't aware of or can't properly contemplate the trolley problem, and there's no solution to it, yeah. how can we expect a self-driving car to do that? And if it can't do that, or like, just say the right decision is still a bad decision and mm-hmm. still ends up taking lives, like, is a car morally culpable? Yeah, look, I think the thing with the trolley problem is that the reason why we can't contemplate it ourselves and why it can't be solved is because it's actually not real. And I think the trolley problem has created a lot of philosophical and ethical technological rabbit holes. Yes. um, Which we just don't want to go down, and I think we really need to stop going down. We're getting off the trolley, you and I. Okay, no more trolley. Yeah. I would like to see the end of the trolley problem. <laughs> oh wow! Um, because it doesn't it doesn't really present us with a realistic situation. I guess it doesn't take us forward. It doesn't it, because yeah. it can't take us forward because yeah. it can't even be solved. Um, so the so what we really need to do is to actually start thinking beyond the trolley problem, thinking about well, okay, so self driving cars are a real possibility technologically. Yeah, but they're not really on our roads. There are some self driving cars on the roads in some places. In some to some degrees, right? But okay, so given we've got this technological possibility, what could we really do with it to make our lives better? Yep. Rather than contemplating what it would be like if we had lots of them on the road, um, or with the potential trolley problems to confront. Yeah, potential crashes, <laughs> yeah. worst case scenarios. Mm. So the, the real question for me becomes: Well, let's go back to that everyday life situation in a real community with real people. And then think about, well, we've got a car that could potentially drive on its own or with possible human intervention that's accessible, right, if, if, it, if, if it's needed. What do we need to make sure that it's safe? Do we need to have it 
connected to a human so a human can intervene if they need to. Um, do and What would we want to use it for? Who would actually really benefit from having yeah. a car that drives itself? Yeah. And then get to those people, right, and say, well, how would you like to use this car? What would make you feel safe? What would make you feel comfortable? Mm. How can we make it part of your life in a mm. way that really, really serves you? So um, for me, that's, you know, rather than making the assumptions first, rather than me even saying, well, it might be a senior person who can't drive, who needs to get to a healthcare appointment. That would be a, that would be a very easy assumption to make, right? Or we could say, oh, it might be a parent who needs to get the kids to school, but they have to send them independently, which are two of the very classic kind of assumptions that yep. you might make. Um, but maybe we should not even make those assumptions. Maybe we should just start in a community with different groups of people to actually understand how a self-driving car might fit into that life. And we might be really surprised about what we find, right? Mm. So we might find that the self-driving car is weaving its way through that community. It might be picking some things up and taking them to up to people from one person to another. It might be taking some people to places. It might be combining some of those things. There might be actually a whole series of tasks that multiple people want that vehicle to do that could be woven together. So that it becomes something of a complement to life in the community. Yeah. Rather than being an ownership model where everybody has one and those self-driving cars are all just weaving through the town on a daily basis, taking people to different places and things like that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, a a lot of the way you think is sort of coming back to community and Mm -hmm. like use and sort of I can see the ethnographic process play out and how you think. Very interesting. Mm. so we we touched on some of the tech that you're excited about, which is sort of more of the, um, as you call it, not the most like exciting stuff, mm-hmm. but useful stuff. Is the stuff that you're a bit terrified about that you kind of think, oh, I'm a bit concerned about this as an emerging tech or like maybe let's, let's just uh, watch this with interest? No, I'm not worried about technologies being developed and designed themselves. I think that um, techies will always um, develop and design technologies because they can. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a lot of fun to be had in that space yep. as well. I'm not worried about the technologies themselves. I think that any t- every technology that could have a, you know, a worrying application can also have a very beneficial application. I think, again, I'm, I'm worried about... Um, Are you worried about TikTok? Not particularly worried about TikTok. Um, I don't use TikTok myself. Oh, you don't need to worry about it too much. <laughs> so, um, no, but what I um, what I'm, I'm excited about the technological possibility, and I think for me, I want to. I know that there are worrying applications of most of the, the tech that's being developed. Yeah, but I want to turn the attention away from that towards thinking, really thinking about the good things we can do with tech. I think it's important to be critical. I think it's important to acknowledge that bad things are done with technologies and we could we could find at least, we could find many of those every single day. Um, and a lot of people, that's the work of quite a lot of people's work is actually to critically understand what's going wrong and to identify and to call it out. There's a lot of that happening, and I'm, I think it's very important to do that. I think my own agenda is to acknowledge that that's there and it needs to be done, but to really fold the focus 
towards what good can we do? Yeah. And to and to ensure that we that by by academics and by social scientists and anthropologists and people in my field focusing our attention on what can the good can be done that yeah. can be done rather than on what's being done that's wrong. Yeah. We can do more good ourselves. Oh, 100%. And, right. and that comes that's through in your research really clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when you talk about sort of uh, designing inclusive, ethical and trusted futures, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you really do focus on the positives mm-hmm. and it's part yeah. of, I think, why it's very appealing to hear you speak. Yeah. I mean, going back to the, the documentary filmmaking work, um, if we really we've, – we've just um, had a series of films that have come out of my lab and the Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making Society, Jenny Lee, who's our filmmaker um, – her work is, is an outstanding, and she's developed a series of three um, short films um, working with two blind and one deaf participant. Um, they're short, under five, around five minutes or so. And um, the films are now going to be on SBS. Oh, wow. They're also going to be available on other platforms. And um, they take as their starting point the perspectives of those three people. And they just tell us very directly that we need to design tech with people. We need to, our starting point needs to be people who are currently excluded from the visions of tech design. So if we start tech design, you know, with a person who, who's blind or with a person who's deaf, then we'll really understand what they need tech to be like in order for it to work for them. Uh, And again, that's, where you can that's where I'm what I'm excited about the the possibilities of actually starting tech design in a place where where we need to be super inclusive and then seeing what that tech looks like um once it becomes available to everybody right so that that's um, so Jenny's films um yeah will be available soon and just just look out for them on social media yeah Follow fantastic us on the emerging tech lab we're on I think we'll all of the platforms definitely pop a link in the show notes to the yeah. emerging tech lab that's mm-hmm. very interesting and you've also just uh, written a book recently emerging technologies life at the edge of the future great title unbelievable title um, what are some of the most interesting things that you discovered sort of and came away with in in, in writing that book first thing I'll say about the book is that. For me, the ti- you said that it's a good title. I, I love the title as well. And too, I was yeah. really, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about if I was going to call it one thing or the other or which order I was going to have those two <laughs> phrases in. Um, and also I didn't, lots of people have a colon, especially academics, you have like a colon after oh, the first the... bit. But I didn't. Yep. I had a slash because emerging technology slash like life at the edge of the You future. broke convention right there. Because it's one, it's not one, it's not the other. Yeah. The reason why I'm excited about emerging technologies is because emerging technologies for me embody the state we're in of living at the edge of the future. So we're, we're, always, we're always living at the edge. We inevitably and unavoidably are going to step over into the future right now from my, what I'm saying now to what I'm saying now. <laughs> We've already moved on into that immediate future. And what I'm fascinated about is that question of what it feels like to live at the edge of the future and how we move over into what's next. And for me, what what are the feelings we have as we move over? So do we feel trust? Do we feel anxiety? Do we feel fear? Do we feel hope? What are those emotions that we actually experience as we move over, as we go forward? And what's most important, I think, is to arrive at a society where we, what we always feel as we slip over into the future is trust um, and hope. Um, and so that... 
So the question for emerging technologies is how do we feel with those emerging technologies as they come into our lives? Do we feel hope and trust or do we feel anxiety and fear? And, And again, that takes us back into that designing in the sites of our everyday life and realities. And if we do that and we we encounter tech that's inclusive, tech that we trust, tech that gives us hope, then our life at the edge of the future will be filled with those positive sentiments and emotions. And if we could achieve that for everyone, how wonderful would that be? So that's the principle for me in the book. And that's what I've done in the book is that I've explored these questions of futures, of hope and trust. Um, I've also explored future mobility technologies, future home tech and future work tech But I also have three other chapters where I explore these questions of our environment that we live in. One of them is about data. Data is part of our everyday environments and worlds. As we walk around our worlds, data is everywhere. And it comes to us probably through our phones quite often, but as we've talked about the phone a lot. But um, another chapter is about energy, because we need energy basically to do everything we do, and especially tech. And the other chapter is about air, because data and energy and air are all those three things that shape our lives. Mm. And um, so you asked me like some of the tech that I, I write about in the book. And one of the things that I've become fascinated about, which I start to write about in the book, is the future is future air technology. Yeah, cl- clean air for the yeah. future. Yep. So COVID pandemic has brought some of this home to us. So the market for um, air tech is growing. So many more. I don't know if you've got an air purifier or filter um, at home. Probably for I'm the really, baby. I'm happy you raised yeah. this because we don't. I have a friend who does. Yeah, and yeah. I just was at um, a health office, a health mm-hmm. promotion office recently with some yeah. colleagues. And they had some super interesting tech in every room that yeah. was um, aimed at that air cleanliness. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So air filtration purification is getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. In our homes. And some of the research I've been doing with my colleagues and one of our our Digital Energy Futures project, you know, we're thinking now about future air conditioning tech will actually have purification and filtration might be part of that tech. There's also, um, but what about air filtration and purification in cars? Can you imagine driving around in a car in the future, which will actually filter out, you know, COVID um, virus um, particles, bush, fire, smoke, everything. I think bad breath or a bad body odor would yeah, be good as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, it could purify your air, get everything you want out of it that's in your car with yep. you, but also stop anything from coming in. Oh, that'd be nice. You know, um, so there's all kinds of um, air purification tech that's being and filtration tech being developed in organisations, in homes, in cars. What about in public transport? You know, so this question around. So, but what's so terrifying about this is that that tech's kind of exciting right to think about on the other hand that tech is protecting us from our air and the air is what we breathe right it's our life source yeah but why do we need to have tech to protect ourselves from the air well because we've depleted our environment so much that the air is no longer safe yeah and how have we done that uh, well, just society <laughs> yeah, and the design, the resource extractive exactly. uh, resources. Yep. And what are Industry. we extracting resources for? Industry. For tech yeah. and for energy tech, and yeah. all of those things. Oh, so, yep, the cycle. So we're in this awful cycle yep. where we have this terrible conundrum, right? Do we protect ourselves from the air or do we protect the air from us? Yeah. Well, the bigger question is how do we achieve both of those things at the same time? So how can we ensure that we have safe and clean air while at the same time ensuring that we don't damage our air and make it less safe yep. and less clean in doing so. Have you been to uh, Bhutan so, before? 
No, I haven't. Do you want to go? Oh, I'd absolutely love to, uh, I was, <laughs> to see what's happening like there. It sounded like I was about to offer you a ticket, yeah. but I was going to just say that um, I, I spent some time there and um, the air and the water, some of the cleanest experiences ever, like drinking from a stream in Bhutan, oh, it, it's like it tastes like like M- Melbourne water is pretty good. This was like 20 times Melbourne water. It was like drinking a Coke Zero uh, if it was, you know, the excitement of water. You know, and then the air because it's like I think the open, only carbon positive uh, country in the world because they've got seventy percent forest cover. Um, you just feel like you have all this extra energy and liveliness. Um, it's totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean. I'm I'm interested in getting to a place. I, I don't know what the answer is, whether technology should be part of the answer, but certainly reforestation and, and things like that and being in green spaces seems like a good starting point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful example. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, now we live with tech, so how can we make tech work for us? And and But how do we work to make sure that we do keep, keep ourselves safe yeah. and have clean yeah. air? So that's... A, Super interesting challenge. Absolutely. And look, I'm really excited to read this book now. So um, certainly going to leave a link to the book in the show notes. And I want to thank you so much for coming on today. It's just been so nice chatting with you. How can people um, connect with you and learn a bit more about your work? So I'm at the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. We're on social media, so you can follow us on LinkedIn. You're a good follower on Twitter as well. And Facebook, yeah. yeah. And I I post everything as well on Twitter and and LinkedIn and Facebook about what we're doing in the lab and what I'm doing. So follow us on social media. Visit our website on the Monash site, Emerging Technologies Research Lab. Um, You can connect to our social media there as well. Um, If you only use email, then you could also email us. <laughs> we, we use it a lot. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, just um, follow us, you know, follow our activities, come to our events. Um, the next big event coming up is the Transport and Mobilities um, Symposium, which we're holding as part of the Centre of Automated Decision Making in Society. It's called Future Automated Mobilities. It's the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making Society, which um, we're connected with and in which I lead the Transport and Mobilities um, focus area. We're going to be screening our films, the ones I talked about. We're also going to be screening at least two other of Jenny's amazing documentaries. Um, We have panels that are going to be looking at diversity, about industry and stakeholder engagement, um, about airborne mobilities and drones and all of these kinds of things. Um, yeah, it's going to be a super exciting event presenting all kinds of also creative materials and and um, activities that our colleagues have been um, developing in Sweden as well. So it's a very international event too. Yeah, you are doing so much. It's phenomenal. <laughs> I, like, is there a page that I can link to that sort of has all the things that you're doing or is it best to go to your Monash page? Yeah, come to our, our Monash mm-hmm. page, Emerging Tech Lab yep. page, and um, also check out the um, – Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making Society, and there's much more work than we're doing there. It's very vibrant and fascinating. Oh, well, fantastic. And look, thank you so much again, and it's just been a pleasure being with you today. Thank you very much. It's lovely talking to you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player, and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.